Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for turning up to today's webinar, which is all about this uh, this thing called Bayesian analysis. So before I go on, I just want to, wouldn't mind firstly to double check that our chat window is working and to see if anyone has ever heard of Bayesian analysis as well. Uh, please feel free to type in a yes or a no so I can get a good understanding of where you guys are at in terms of Bayesian analysis. The uh, questions tab, not the chat window. Sorry, questions. So I see you can see a yes from uh, John. And a yes, it's a couple of yeses. All right, so that's a good good start. Um, so when people say they've heard about Bayesian analysis, there is a wide array of what a wide array of interpretations of that answer. So people have often heard of this thing, which is all about what they think is uh, let's call it subjective analysis, gut feeling, things like that, things that don't feel very scientific. But Bayesian analysis can be extraordinarily powerful. So I'm going to start with um, I'm going to start with an example where we look at. Oh, that's not working. I have to do it manual, old school uh, way. We're going to look at a problem which I often find, or a problem I create for my uh, students in, in the classroom, in the in the uh, class in the classrooms where I'm allowed to teach them face to face, as opposed to what we have to do these days. And what I often ask them to do is I ask them be, to start the lesson by having a look at what is usually a big uh, PowerPoint, uh, power, uh, sorry, a, a slide or a big TV or a big monitor or a big screen where the screen where the graphics are being projected. And I ask them to have a guess at what the length of the diagonals diagonal of that thing is. And so when I and I ask them to say, hey, use your you are now experts. You now I, I want you to go away and try and work out what the diagonal of this TV, this screen, this projector is. And the, the thing I tell them, the constraint I put on these people is that they can't actually get out of their seats, but I actually make it a little bit easier for them. I say, you are allowed to use, um, you are allowed to use, uh, you're, you're able to look at, the th look at the screen, you're able to gauge it, you're able to do tons of other things. But when I want you to, to, uh, to tell me what the, what the length is, what your best guess is, I want you to do it in certain ways. So what I'm doing here is I'm setting up a, a challenge where we're trying to get someone to give me their expert opinion about something. And this is obviously uh, a very arbitrary thing. How long is the diagonal of a television screen? But it's a very useful, uh, uh, it's a very useful analogy for what Bayesian analysis is all about. So, here is a ruler. This ruler here, all this ruler does is represent scale. And all I'm asking my people to do, my students to do, is give me some sort of estimate using this scale on the diagonal of the TV. And so, for example, one person might say, you know what, my best guess is 70 centimetres. I guess that the diagonal of that television or monitor is 70 centimetres. And I go, thank you very much. So that's your best guess, 70 centimetres. We lock 70 centimetres into that person. But the second piece of information I want from that person is 
the accuracy. And I asked them to talk about accuracy in terms of plus or minus. How far above and below your best guess do you believe uh, you are confident that the true length of that diagonal lies? And the third bit of information I say is when I ask, ask from these students, sorry, is when I say confident, or when you say confident, I want a percentage. So, for example, this expert, student number one, said, I believe that uh, well, my best guess for the diagonal length of the diagonal of the television is 70 centimetres, and I'm 90% confident that the true value is between 10 centimetres above and below that 70 centimetre best guess. And so I can do something with this information. I have three bits of data from my expert number one. 70 centimetres is the best guess, plus or minus 10 centimetres is their accuracy or tolerance bounds, and they are 90% confident that the true diagonal lies within that, uh, that little interval. So I can now use that information to create a probability distribution where it is centered around their best guess, 90% of all, all values, uh, or 90% in terms of probability of all values lies within their tolerance, and so I now have some way of capturing their uh, their their mind. I'm describing what their their brain is seeing. And in this case, I'm using a simple bell curve. So this bell curve here represents the information that expert number one has given to me. So this can be very very useful, and you're about to see why. Because when I combine expert number one with expert number two with expert in this case uh, up to fifteen. I can use this thing called Bayesian analysis to take each and one of these expert opinions as I've represented them on the screen right now, do something with them, and I spit out something really, really useful. This updated probability distribution here. So the bell curve at the start, all those gray ones represent expert judgment, expert opinions. The red one represents what Bayesian analysis spits out at the end that takes into consideration every single expert, takes into consideration the information they have and gives us this nice red uh, bell curve, which we now call what we call, the, we call this, sorry, the posterior distribution. So this is all well and good, but remember the challenge, we were, remember the question we were trying to answer, how long was the diagonal of the, of the TV screen? All this expert opinion is great. All this uh, posterior distribution, it looks useful and, and nice. But in, the, in this case, the actual diagonal of the television, when I measured it uh, correctly, turned out to be 76 centimetres. So right in the middle of the posterior distribution. And this shows how powerful Bayesian analysis can be. Obviously, it's trivial, trivially easy to, um, to measure the diagonal of a TV or diagonal of a screen or, or what have you. But sometimes we can't easily measure things. And sometimes we get caught up with having to have data which is exclusively derived from a test or an experiment. But Bayesian analysis can take any sort of information source, including expert opinion, and give truly remarkable results, such as this one, uh, such as the one you can see on the screen in front of you right now. 15 students simply gave me their opinion about something. We used Bayesian analysis to combine their opinions and the posterior distribution just happened to be extraordinarily accurate in terms of the thing we were trying to investigate. And every time I do this in a classroom setting, the, uh, the results are always the same. I always get a posterior distribution, which just happens to be ridiculously accurate 
or whatever it is I'm asking my students to students to estimate and, and give back to me. So this is an intro to Bayesian analysis for the perhaps few of you who haven't come across it before. So Bayesian analysis is extraordinarily powerful. So let's go back to our little example here. We have each one of these little bell curves represents the expert opinions, but in this case, sorry, in Bayesian analysis, it doesn't really matter if it's expert opinion or not. It can be, uh, it can be any information source. And here is the combination of all the information we have got so far. These bell curves representing expert opinion. The combined information is this beautiful posterior distribution here. But let's label these perhaps a bit more formally. All those little uh, gray bell curves in the back, those expert opinions, that, that information that my students gave to me are what we call likelihood functions. Remember that, that the thing that our, uh, our Bayesian analysis fits out at the end is posterior distribution. And don't forget that a likelihood function combines a model, which in the, in the example we just looked at was the bell curve, which I assume to be a good fit of everyone based on everyone's opinion combined with evidence. And so the evidence in this case was my best guess, plus or minus 10 centimetres uh, or whatever my acting tolerance was and the confidence that I have that the true value lies within those bounds. And the one more thing we need to have for Bayesian analysis is this thing called the prior distribution. In this case, what I use for my prior distribution is what we call a uniform distribution where every value or every possible value has a an equally likely chance of being the true or correct value. So Bayesian analysis is all about starting with what we call the prior distribution, which is our prior understanding or state of knowledge, and adding information to spit out the posterior distribution, which is our updated state of knowledge or posterior state of knowledge, updated understanding uh, rather. So before I go on, I'd just like to ask, ask, the, team, ask the crowd, what applications have you guys, uh, what applications has Bayesian analysis been used for you guys? Has it worked? Has it not worked? Just give me a feel of where these techniques have touched your life in a positive or negative way. Yeah, please feel free to uh, use the question window as per Fred's advice. Reliability data analysis, I see one. Has that worked well? Another one, ha haven't used it. Using similarity analysis, pass-fail testing. Okay, so a number of different responses. For some reason, I can only see the last question coming through. Um, but has Bayesian analysis helped or hindered? Or, or uh, I see that there's a lot of applications being uh, being talked about here. Was it useful? Was it helpful? Did it get the answer? Or was it some sort of witchcraft that no one really understood well? So I see one here. So I use Bayesian analysis to update reliability data and it works extremely well. Fantastic. 
<laughs> he was help it was helpful and I understood it, but everyone else viewed it as witchcraft. Fantastic. That's a that's a sentiment that's that's used a lot. Super useful in why bays. Did not need to testify to prove that the fire mode was eliminated. Now, why bays is a strong term. Uh, in most when most people talk about why bays, what they're talking about is Bayesian analysis where the shape parameter is fixed. Now, technically speaking, um, that's just that's just you you're using a simple model where you only have one parameter to say it's a true Bayesian analysis is a, is probably a bit of a stretch. Uh, for example, using assuming an exponential distribution is simply Y Bayes where the shape parameter is constrained to one. So, but I, I do take your point. Y Bayes does represent having some prior information about the nature of failure, be it wearing constant hazard rate or wear out, where you can constrain that shape parameter. But I suppose if if that's Bayesian analysis, then pretty much anything can be Bayesian analysis. But why Bayes can be useful. Um, using beta conjugate prior for pass-fail testing. Yeah, beta, beta conjugate, the beta conjugate is really useful for understanding, or beta distribution, sorry, is really useful for modeling probability uh, period, not just as a conjugate prior. It just so happens that it's very useful as a conjugate prior. But uh, so I see a, a wide array of responses and yes, it is often viewed as witchcraft. So we're going to talk today about why it is viewed as witchcraft as well. Before we do that, we're going to start with the concept of the likelihood. Now, every statistical inference problem really revolves around the likelihood or the likelihood function. And the likelihood is technically a probability, but in practice, it's different to the probability we're trying to investigate. So we give it a brand new name called the likelihood so that we don't confuse ourselves. We know that the likelihood is a probability that sits over here and helps our statistical inference, but we don't want to confuse that probability with the probability where, of the thing we're investigating over here. So let's just say we have a random process, in this case, our random hand of failure, which is influenced by things like material imperfections, manufacturing, all sorts of different wonderful uh, things that really ruin the lives of reliability engineers and introduce variation into what we would ideally like to be a consistent, repeatable process, thing, measurement, what have you. So in this case, our random hand of failure, we can characterize this uncertainty using a probability density function, which looks a little bit like this in this case. So this bell curvish thing here, this gray shape, this just so happens uh, to be the, the, uh, the uh, summary of the probability characteristic or probabilistic characteristics of our random hand of failure. So if that's the case, we can run an experiment, we can run a, run a test or just observe what happens. And when we do that, we get a bunch of random variables. So here we have a bunch of random variables being spat out by our hand of failure. And you can see that the, you, you, you can see that the density of our random variables tends to, or the density of the realizations of our random variables tends to cluster around the highest point of this probability density function, this bell curve-ish thing, which makes sense. So you can see straight away, this, this shape tends to describe what we're observing as it should, because I know this is summarizing the randomness of our process in question. Okay, so we, you might be able to conclude that it's likely 
that uh, these particular values would be described by this PDF, just by looking at it. If you could say, yep, I can see that there is some correlation in dense, between density and the height of our PDF curve over here, then you say, you know, intuitively you'll say, you might, sorry, intuitively you might say that this particular curve has a high likelihood of being uh, the actual curve, uh, representing the actual probability characteristics of our hand. So if you think the density of our random variable values matches the curve, you might say, okay, it's likely to be, it's likely to occur, it's likely to be real. It's, this is likely the true PDF at the heart of our, of our random process. Okay, so let's look at a different PDF. Let's look at this one over here. This is a, this is a PDF based on a constant hazard rate, it's the exponential distribution. Um, but you could hopefully agree with me if I was to pose to you that this PDF curve is less likely to describe our data. You can see where the, where the curve is the highest, we have virtually no, or absolutely no random variable values. And the random variable values that we do see uh, tend to be distributed around a lower part of this PDF curve. So what this means is that this PDF curve is less likely to describe the random process that uh, gives rise to random variable values. It's not impossible, it's still, it's still a finite chance these random variable values could be, uh, uh, could be resultant from this PDF curve, but the chances of us seeing these 20 or 30 or so random variable values, if the true underlying uh, probability was described by this PDF curve, that chance is relatively low. All right, so let's go back. So here is a curve here that we, you know, hopefully we can look at it and say, this curve is more likely to be the, be the one that describes what's going on when compared to the exponential distribution curve we looked at. And so we're not going to go into PDFs in great detail here, but just as revision, uh, we've done some previous webinars, we know that f of x, uh, is, represents a probability density function, which gives a relative probability of a continuous random variable being equal to a specific value. So this curve here is an example PDF. Now let's just say we are looking at this from another perspective. Let's just say we have the data points and we're trying to find out what the likely PDF curve is so it can answer a ton of other questions. So let's just say this is our candidate PDF that could describe our data. We talked about the likelihood in a very subjective term, but there's, a, there's an actual way of calculating the precise likelihood that this curve uh, is the one that describes the probabilistic nature of our random variable, uh, random process. So what we do is for every random variable data point, this candidate PDF, we simply find the height of that curve at that random variable value and this gives a relative probability of each, of each uh, random variable occurring. And if we multiply them together, we can create a number. And that number is the likelihood. This number tells me the likelihood, the relative likelihood that this PDF curve describes the data that we're seeing. And in this case, you can see on the scale over here, it's, uh, it's maybe at one sixth of the way up the scale. So it's clearly a non-zero uh, non figure, but we can formally, we can, uh, we can very mathematically and precisely calculate the likelihood of a particular PDF 
given random, random variable values. So we can do the same though with our other exponential distribution curve, this one over here. This is a candidate PDF curve. Remember, we, we, we can present it with some data here. And what we're trying to do is find out if, find out the likelihood that this exponential curve uh, describes what's going on. And we do the same process. We go up from each data point, find the height of the PDF curve at, at, at each value, for each value, multiply them together, and you can see over here that the uh, likelihood that this curve describes the data is very, very low. So we use the term likelihood not to describe the probability of seeing each data point, but we use the likelihood to typically de uh, describe the probability that some model, some parameter is true or not. And it allows us to compare in a very quantitative way uh, the, the, uh, the, the confidence we might have that one PDF curve describes a data when compared to another. But every single statistical inference school uses this particular approach. It uses the likelihood function. The likelihood function is the heart of virtually every statistical analysis you will ever see. So what makes Bayesian analysis different? What is special, special about Bayesian analysis even because it does use a likelihood function? It does use similar concepts. Well, I'm going to introduce my ponderous professor. My ponderous professor is a typical stuffy statistician dude who loves science experiments, loves data analysis, but, uh, but sees, gets for some reason, uh, some per perverse enjoyment out of doing bunches of spreadsheets, bunches of analyses, bunches of uh, investigations, bunches of tests for his or her own aim. And let's just say our ponderous professor comes up to us one day and says, it is with 90% confidence that I say that mission reliability is greater than 0.99. So in this case, we're in an organization where we're investigating, um, we're investigating something, uh, we're trying to perhaps look at the reliability of a mi missile system or something like that. And this guy has been given a task understanding its reliability. And then he, after he does all this stuff, he comes back and says, it's 90% confidence, so I say mission reliability is greater than 0.99. And our first response would be something like, great. So there is a 90% chance that reliability is greater than 0.99. Now, if we go back to this ponderous professor, at least in this scenario, he might come back to us and say, I didn't say that, to which we would be very confused. So we go back to our ponderous professor and clarify and he says the same thing over again. I said, it is with 90% confidence that I say that the mission reliability is greater than 0.99. Now we're really confused. So we ask him, what is the probability that the mission reliability is greater than 0.9? And he would say, I don't work that out. And now we are beyond confused. And so we'll go back and ask him about that first statement he said. He said it was 90% confidence that uh, the mission reliability is greater than 0.99. And a true, what we call classical statistician would say, what that means is that for every 10 times I say something with 90% confidence, you would expect me to be wrong once. So this is the traditional interpretation of classical statistics, what they call frequentist statistics, and we'll go into that in greater detail. And after, that we'll probably uh, consider punching this dude in the head 
and telling him to go away because that's not useful. We're not interested in how many times he's right or wrong. We want to use his understanding of the probability to go and inform a business case or a mission planning scenario or anything else that matters that relies on a probabilistic understanding of mission reliability. So the reason we are frustrated with this dude is because he is working in the field of frequentist probability. And that is all about observing things and looking at yourself as the essentially the thing being studied. You're, I'm going to say something with confidence. And what, when, I, when I use the term confidence, it's a probability that I'm right or wrong versus where that's a, that metric we're looking at lies between a certain values, for example. So if you then go and use what that frequentist statistician said, for example, if you, if you go and use a 90% probability of reliability exceeding 0.99 in your business case, which is using his own words, not what he said, you are using what we call subjective probability. So every time you take a frequentist or classical uh, probabilistic uh, output, which is I can say with 90% confidence that reliability is between here and here, and then go great and fit it into a spreadsheet and say, hey, there's a 90% chance that reliability is between here and here. You are technically misrepresenting what is frequentist probability and using it as subjective probability. Now, what is subjective probability? Subjective probability is not gut feeling. It is not expert opinion. Subjective probability means probability from the perspective of you, the observer, given information, how do I interpret the information for me to go and, go and then make a probabilistic uh, determination about the likelihood of something happening in my life? What's the probability that my football team is going to win the game because that's going to influence my fantasy football score or fantasy football results? What is the probability of me winning this hand in blackjack because I want to know if I'm going to double down or files? You don't, you don't fold in blackjacks, it's a bad example. But subjective probability is something that human beings and Bayesian analysis are all about. We see information on a daily basis and we update what we call our state of knowledge. Classical or frequentist statistics, our ponderous professor, technically, technically don't look at things using subjective probability. And when we use the term subjective probability, that's where people look at this and say, that's witchcraft, because subjective has this connotation of essentially it being a guess, being the opposite of objective, which is not true. You can still have subjective probability, which is objective, in that any subject, given the same information set, would, have, would make the same conclusions. So this is one of the sort of bad PR points about Bayesian analysis, is that it's all about subjective probability. But people hear the term subjective and go, oh, I don't like that. Okay, but there is one bigger problem with this whole confusion of sub subjective and frequentist probability. Textbooks that really go into the uh, details of classical or frequentist statistics uh, don't pretend that they are being subjective. They don't pretend that they're being anything else but that ponderous professor saying, hey, I'm, when I say I'm 90% confident, that means one out of every 10 times I'm going to be wrong about this statement. That's what most statistical textbooks will tell you. They'll, they will come out and say, we are, this is all about frequentist probability. This is all about classical statistics. 
But when they come comes time to use that uh, use those outcomes in an example, they magically forget about that and then treat the outputs of classical statistics, outputs of frequentist probabilities, in uh, uh, and turn them into subjective probabilities. So it makes a question answerable. It makes a scenario uh, solvable or problem solvable more correctly. So we are not we are not served well by textbooks which continually mix up what is classical statistics and subjective probability, and for some reason also uh, don't advocate for Bayesian analysis because Bayesian analysis is all about subjective probability. So if you are doing any form of statistical analysis, chances are you are always doing a weird case of Bayesian analysis. So classical statistics where you use frequentist uh, probabilities and assume those frequentist prob probabilities are uh, subjective probabilities for, so you can solve your problem, which is what most of us do as statisticians. It is exactly the same as Bayesian, Bayesian analysis where you assume a constant or uniform prior distribution and the information you can, you can uh, use for your statistical inference has to be test or experimental data only. So even if you think you're not doing Bayesian analysis, nine times out of 10, you actually are, if you're going to use those probabilities in a way that makes sense, i.e. turn them into subjective probabilities. But the flip side is, is when you do that, it becomes Bayesian analysis where there's a uniform prior distribution and the only information you can incorporate is test or experimental data. Now, often we, we often like, uh, we often believe that a uniform distribution represents a state of, uh, state of pure confusion. We don't know anything about anything. So if we don't know anything about anything, then what we do is we, we simply assign every possible value as having an equal likelihood, equal likelihood of occurring. Now this might seem, this might feel, this might feel like it makes sense, but when you think about it, it doesn't. So in this case, when we're looking at our TV screen, uh, this the Bayesian analysis I did, which did assume a uniform prior distribution. What that, what's that saying? What that is saying is before I even start asking my students about the diagonal of my television screen, I believe that it is equally likely for my television screen to have a 70 centimeter diameter diameter diagonal, sorry, as it is for my television screen to have a one million kilometer diameter. That's what a uniform prior distribution means, and typically that's not what we mean at all. Mean at, mean at all. But Bayesian analysis is different. We can use any sort of information, including test and experimental data, imperfect data, expert judgment, any form of information, and we can use any prior distribution. In fact, there's a whole bunch of what we call non-informative prior distributions, which have gone through the ringer and are created based on minimizing what we call entropy. It is a scientific approach as any to try and minimize the, uh, the lack of information or summarize, sorry, the lack of information. So our expert opinion, our information sources can be then used to increase our state of knowledge. Classical statistics, they like, um, or classical statisticians, sorry, they like to think that they are not using Bayesian statistics because that's all subjective and that's all guessing and that's all witchcraft. But in practice, whenever they have to use outputs of a classical statistical analysis, they typically assume it to be a subjective probability, which means they converted to Bayesian analysis anyway with the uniform prior. So think about this. Every time you are doing this, 
using classical statistics, using textbook stuff, you are you typically end up converting a frequentist probability into a subjective probability. So if you're doing that and, uh, and nothing else, you are actually doing a weird form of Bayesian analysis. The Bayesian analysis is not just better in terms of being able to incorporate more information. It can be used to solve really challenging problems. So if, let's say, for example, you are manufacturing a product. In this case, it could be maybe an engine. It's a very sim simplified scenario, so bear with me. Now, let's just say in some testing before you released your product to the world, you found that one out of 20 products had defects. One out of 20. But you're, you, 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 you uh, release a product anyway. Unusual for, for a final testing to, to conclude that one out of every 20 products has a defect. But in this scenario, let's just say that's what we did. We, our final testing before we released our product into the world showed us that when we tested 20 products, one had a defect. Or in other words, about 5% of our products had defects. Now, let's say we also sent out a quick one-question electronic survey to 1,000 customers and we got 48 negative responses. So understand, we have, we believe that 5% of our products have a defect. When we did a survey, the only responses we got back were 48 negative responses. Now let's not go into what they actually said. Let's just say it's a very simple survey. You could say, were you happy, yes or no? And uh, obviously people could choose to not respond, but when people did, or when 48 of them did, we got negative responses. So what does that mean? Does that mean we actually have more defects than the 5% figure we, we, uh, we believe at the start? Well, you can't answer this question without using Bayesian analysis because we know that customers who are happy often are less likely to say anything. If they're happy, they get spam in their, what they see is spam in their inbox from a manufacturer. They don't have time to deal with it. They're not going to say anything negative, but they're not going to say anything positive either. But customers who are irate and they get the survey from you and they go, yes, this is my chance to stick it to this company who screwed me over because they gave me a defective product. They, customers who have negative experiences can sometimes be more likely to respond, period. So let's just say after this, we go to our marketing team. Our marketing team believes that customers who have negative experiences would be about 60%, uh, would respond 60% of the time. So you have a negative experience with the product, you get the email from our manufacturing company, which is a simple one question survey, 60% of those customers with the negative experience would send a negative response back. Our marketing team also believes that 1% of our happy customers would also send back a negative response because there's always, uh, it's, it's often challenging to keep customers happy, whatever, whatever the rationale is. But you can see here, we have behavioral dis differences between people who are happy versus people who are not happy or people who have a defective product versus people who don't have a defective product. So in this case, our marketing team says if there's a defective product out there, 60% chance that user or customer will tell us they're not happy. For those customers who don't have a defective product, there's a 1% chance they're going to tell us they're not happy. Then we can do Bayesian analysis stuff. 
and incorporate those numbers and those metrics and create this curve here. And you can see that the axes on the screen right now, on the horizontal axis, we have the percentage of products with defects. Now, remembering our first test was one in five, sorry, one in 20. That is, we believe that, uh, sorry, the best guess based on that first experiment was that 5% of our products had defects. So you can see five is right in the middle there. So when we do Bayesian analysis, this is our posterior distribution. Even though we got 48 negative responses, so every single response was negative, when we included the information from the marketing team, we realized that yes, if we had to have a best guess now at the percentage of defective products, it is higher than 5%, but it is not astronomically high. It has just moved up the scale a little bit. And in this case, this posterior distribution was based on the original test data where we had one product test uh, so one product out of 20 showed that there was a defect. It incorporated marketing team judgment and uh, incorporated the survey response. So I'll open it to the open it to questions right now. I know Fred is having a couple of technical issues. I'm not entirely sure if you guys can actually respond right now, or actually uh, communicate with me using the chat question window. But I'll ask. Uh, I'll ask. Uh, I'll ask people uh, in terms of, uh, I'll, I'll put the question out there. We, we talked about reliability specific problems when, when you were saying, this is where I've used Bayesian analysis in the past. Has there been any, let's call it softer scenarios like this, where we need to use expert judgment, we need to uh, incorporate less hard information to try and answer a wickedly challenging problem or try and solve a wickedly challenging problem because it's no matter what, we'll never have rock hard experimental or test data around us. Is there any, I uh, just want to confirm that you guys can get through to me at this end. And if, you, if there's any, if any, excuse me, if there's any, any experiences where we've done, let's just say non-reliability analysis stuff using Bayesian analysis, glad to hear it. Again, I know that Fred has had some technical issues, so there's a chance that you might not be able to get through to me for what it's worth. I haven't seen anything yet. Oh, here we go. So I can see that, our, sorry, Aris Lee uh, has said that it, he has not, he or she has not used it, but it should be useful process equipment failures and functional safety risk analysis. So functional safety, I believe you're referring to um, scenarios where let's just, the equipment needs to react and positively do something in response to a potentially unsafe situation. Is that what you're talking about? Just to confirm. Right, and so, when we're talking Bayesian analysis and Bayesian inference for that sort of thing, for that sort of scenario, how could Bayesian analysis help you?
So trying to address this, sorry, John, John's come through. Oh, I see that, uh, I see that uh, Arisley's finished off that uh, question. I'll just deal with that one first. It says, uh, we start with our analysis with theoretical failure rates from expert judgment or some statistics. Fantastic. Now, I will say that with expert judgment, you can have a bunch of people in the same room and say, well, what do you guys think? That is technically expert judgment. That is a terrible way of doing things. So if I go back to the scenario I used, the, the example I used at the start of the lesson where I'm trying to get people to estimate the diagonal of a TV screen, I said they had to give me a best guess, they had to give me an accuracy, and they had to give me a confidence. I even trained them because we had a couple of goes at, at uh, estimating something else because no matter what, it takes a little bit of practice to be comfortable with writing down your best guess, plus or minus X centimetres and a confidence. And once we iron the bugs out by doing that three or four times, the height of a tree or the width of a table or um, my height, for example, once we were confident that everyone knew how to communicate their uncertainty, once I looked at every single answer and uh, helped coach them through doing a better job of writing it down next time, then I got them to give me their answers, but anonymously. They wrote it down on a piece of paper and no one to this day knows who, who wrote what. And that's, so there are two things I did. There was coaching to try and characterize their opinion, their information. And then there was, uh, then there was anonymity where there was no fear of peer judgment or peer, or peer review or peer criticism. And that was crucial because if you recall all those different likelihood functions at the start, there were some that were, higher than the posterior distribution. There are some that were lower. And we needed all of those opinions to balance each other out, to offset each other, where those people who had short-sighted approaches to estimating distances were, were, um, were counteracted by those who had perhaps an overestimate of how long the diagonal was. We needed to have that balance. We needed to have that array of opinions. And when you get that array of opinions in an unfettered, unchallenged, and a safe way, you get remarkable results. If you have a bunch of people and say, okay, 10 people, what is your best guess for the diagonal of that TV? You'll get as much information as if you asked one person. So let me explain. When the group sits, uh, sits down and says, I think the diagonal of the TV is 70 centimeters or 80 centimeters, they will talk amongst themselves. They'll come up with their own best guesses those people who are more shy or don't care, they'll sit back and let somebody else give their opinion. And if they don't violently agree with, disagree with it, they'll let it go through. But the more dominant personalities who are led by the dominant personality will have their best guess disproportionately affect that particular statistic. And when it comes to characterizing uncertainty, even when we're in a group, we can't help but characterize uncertainty as if we are one person, even though there's a collective out there. It's only when Bayesian analysis combines all those uncertainties together in a, in a statistic, statistical way that that information can be combined in a way that reduces uncertainty. Excuse me. Okay, so I see that you've had a couple of responses too. Uh, fantastic. Uh, thanks for confirming that's the way you guys do it. Yeah, when you have those anonymous expert uh, opinions, when you're trying to, for example, come up with best guesses for uh, failure rates or whatever it is that matters, get make them anonymous, train people on how to communicate their uncertainty, give them 
give them things they can research so their, their opinion becomes more informed and you get some really remarkably accurate results, isn't it, at the end. Um, going back to John, he said that we are trying to address a stock problem now. Uh, what should our reliability target be for a, a technology new to us based on the experience of other industries and suppliers? That's a really good question. So I can't tell you what the answer should be, but what I can tell you is that always impose structure on expert judgment. So for example, one of the most challenging forms of Bayesian analysis I've ever had to do was trying to understand the extent to which third-party damage would cause ruptures in oil and gas pipelines. So what third-party damage is, is uh, people with excavators or drills or um, overzealous DIY warriors digging down too far in their backyards on a weekend. Uh, what is the probability of our pipe our pipeline, which carries gas or oil being ruptured by those sorts of activities? And it doesn't take much. Sometimes you only need to nick a pipe for you to damage its protective coating and five, 10 years later, corrosion will cause that pipe to rupture. Um, so what we had to do is we had to create an entire structure and questionnaire for our experts to come back and, and give us some information that allowed us to create a model. And the reason why is because we had lots of really good failure data, but we never had any data about success. And what I mean by that, we never had data, uh, we had lots of data where uh, a backhoe, for example, or an excavator would cause damage to a pipe and make it explode. But we never had data for when that same backhoe or that same uh, excavator was in a similar location, close to a pipe, did its thing, but didn't damage the pipe. And we needed to have that information if we wanted to use a classical statistical approach. We, could, it, we only had data which was based on failure data, which is inherently biased. There was no success data, which meant we couldn't really accurately talk about the probabilities, uh, uh, probability of third-party damage. So we had to break it down and give it structure. We had to say, okay, um, if, if this person does this, if for this particular, uh, for this particular state where there is a really good professional uh, advertising campaign about dialing 811 or the dial before you dig or engaging the local utility to come out and mark where these pipelines are, what is the probability that a contract in a state where there is not a lot of advertising or not a lot of professional reinforcement actually calling that number or calling that hotline versus a contractor in a state where that advertising campaign is really powerfully pushed through? And we could have experts come and give us the probability of people calling up or their estimates on people calling up uh, the local authorities to come out and mark the gas pipelines. And once the gas pipelines were marked, we could say, okay, if the pipelines are marked, what is the probability that a company will do the right thing if they are a contractor, if they are a third party, if they're this, that, and the other? And so we're able to break it down and, and create what we, uh, what essentially was an event sequence diagram for failure and say, okay, what are each and, each and every little step toward failure and what is the probability of someone doing the right or wrong thing at that state, move on to the next question, so on and so forth. That structure allowed us to ask questions that allowed experts to give us a much more useful opinion in a way that was much more comfortable for them. So going back to your question, John, I'd suggest you can't get away from uh, breaking down what your new product is going to look like how it's going to fail, and now it's new technology, but you should be able to 
understand or create at least uh, a familiar-like, ESD-like uh, model of what, if it is going to fail, how will it fail? Including, you can include an unknown technological interaction. And once you have that, once you have, okay, for this new product, for this new device, it's, it's going to be new technology. But what is the probability of it not doing what we want it to do in the, when it interacts with this component over here? And if that happens, what then happens after that? If you can break down the key questions for your new technology, that can give a structure to your experts. And you can create a questionnaire where they're very much, they're going to be a lot more comfortable uh, when compared to giving a, uh, giving a single number about the likelihood of failure of a product they really haven't seen yet. Does that help at all, John? Come to you in a minute, Wasm. No worries. So just introduce structure wherever you can. And obviously you can introduce claustrophobic structure where you have to ask every single question if this goes wrong and this goes wrong and this goes wrong so create structure and work out what really matters the most um when it can't wasn't in terms of how to find the failure rate of a new product based on existing product failure rate or expert opinion any examples can i what examples can i show you well i take it back to the very first example i showed you when we we're talking about the diagonal of a tv screen if it's actually a very similar similar uh, challenge. You're asking someone or a bunch of people to give you estimates on the failure on a quantitative thing. It's it's not below zero. It can feasibly extend off to infinity, but it's a positive value you're asking people to give estimates on. So if you were to use the same approach that I described for that diagonal of the TV, where you get your get your experts, teach them, inform them, get them to read up on all these things, uh, even have someone you know, have them sit there and have lessons or have presentations from other people who have had similar experiences or what have you, inform these people. And once you've taught them how to communicate their uncertainty, perhaps using the bell curve, the way I described, um, then get them to write down their, their guesses anonymously on a piece of paper, gather, gather them up at the end of the day, and then use Bayesian analysis to create your posterior distribution. Now, the, the other thing I will say about this Bayesian analysis stuff is that well, I did use the Witch's Cauldron, paying homage to the, to the prize of witchcraft we, receive, we routinely receive over the years whenever we do use Bayesian analysis. It is a lot easier than you think. But how we actually incorporate Bayesian analysis is a subject of another webinar or, um, or, or lesson or course in its own right. It's not that challenging. There's a few textbooks out there if you, you want to go and do it yourself. But, if you, but going back to your question, Wasm, if you do want to have expert opinions uh, try and influence the failure rate estimates for something and do what I did for the, for, for the diagonal of the TV um, problem that I described at the start of the, start of the lesson. Does that answer your question, Wasm? Just waiting for it to come through. No worries. And again, I use, I use the normal distribution. I assume the normal distribution. Often a better distribution to, to assume to, to, uh, that, that captures people's intent or people's guesses of a positive uh, quantity is the log normal distribution. It doesn't extend below zero. 
and it has a really useful property property in that uh, anything uh, the probability of seeing something twice as high as your best guess is the same as the probability of seeing something twice as low as your best guess. And that's, that tends to be how human beings think when we're trying to guess about a quantity. So to summarize uh, the presentation before I open it for more questions, is uh, go back to the classical school of statistics, frequent statistics, the ponderous professors, the, the statisticians out there who keep telling me and everybody else, I never have enough data. I need to do years upon years worth of testing to try and get the answer. This is classical statistics. This is frequentist statistics. There's a reason why classical statistics is called frequentist statistics, because any inference about the probability of something is based on the number of times you see the outcome of that process. You might know tons of information about what the mechanics of that process are. You might have tons of examples over there. You might have modified the system ever so slightly from that system over there, and you have tons of data over there. But when it comes to classical or frequent statistics, the statistics that we're all taught in textbooks, we have to assume nothing and create information from scratch. And that's where Bayesian analysis gets a bad name because we are using every source of information we have. And Bayesian statisticians complain that we don't use the information that we do have well enough. So that's perhaps the best way of, uh, of uh, doing, uh, describing the two schools of thought when it comes to statistical inference. So on that note, we have another six minutes before this finishes. Are there any questions? Any last questions? Sounds like a ton of you guys have used Bayesian analysis before. Um, when used well, it's ridiculously powerful. Expert solicitation, can you share best practices? Um, okay, so that's a, a big question. Uh, I suppose the best practice when it comes to eliciting expert opinion is you don't just ask for it, you control the process. And that might sound weird, but like I said, I'll, again, I'll keep coming back to the example I used at the start of the, start of the lesson where I go into my classrooms, I say, hey students, what's the diagonal of this television? And they have to give me their best guess. You have to train your experts. You train your experts on how to give their expert opinion. And some experts don't like being trained. That's a big problem, problem because they're experts, you ask them to be ask them to talk to you because they are, are an expert. You need to find a way of teaching them how to give you their expert opinion in a way that makes sense. A lot of organisations out there, a lot of people out there simply won't. I remember, um, I, I remember trying to, for example, help create a business case for one organisation, and we had a finance team which had every single number in the book. Um, we went over there to look at historical information, and I asked them to come up with their best guess for this business case over here. And they simply refused. They said, we can't do that. We only have historical data for these scenarios over here. This is slightly different, which means that I'm going to clam up and not give you anything, anything useful. They were experts. They probably could have come up with a best guess, but they just weren't comfortable. So they need to be trained to, to, uh, to uh, give expert opinion, understand what their expert opinion means, 
because the, essentially we had to go around these people. The, the experts in the building refused to give us their opinion and we had to look at the data ourselves and make up the number, which was not ideal. So firstly, train your experts and there will be some egos you need to uh, size up around. The second thing is understand how you're going to model their opinion. So like I said, uh, the log normal distribution tends to do a really good job of modeling um, modeling expert opinion for quantities where the thing you're asking about is a non-negative value. If the thing you're, you're asking their opinion about is any possible number, it could be negative, it could be positive, there's no left or right boundary on it, then the normal distribution for reasons we've discussed in other webinars is really, really useful. But the log normal distribution can be really useful for, um, uh, for expert opinion. In fact, the US Nuclear Regulatory Committee uses the log normal distribution with the concept of error factors. And they say an error factor of five, uh, represents, if you, if you say expert number one, what is your best guess about something? They say my best guess is 125 and I have an error factor of five. Now, error factor of five means that there is a 95% chance that the true value is five times, is between five times lower and five times higher than their best guess. So if you teach your experts what an error factor means, it's a simple way of giving a scale on, on their uncertainty, uh, you can just get them to give a best guess plus an error factor. It's up to you to choose a model, but then you need to teach them about that. And once you do that and get these expert opinion, experts who know how to give their opinion, make sure it's anonymous, not just between each other, but it's anonymous, period. Not even you know who gave you which number. And when you get anonymity and everyone knows it's anonymous, then you get true unfettered, um, unfettered perspectives. Because if they're uncertain, you've trained them on how to teach you, how to tell you that they're uncertain. So that's okay. But if people are uncertain and you ask for their best guess in a room full of people, they're unlikely to be complicit. So anonymity is cool. So they're the three big things. So uh, Rajiv talked about reliability demonstration. How can we use Bayesian analysis for reliability demonstration? Now, demonstration is a terrible term in the reliability field. Um, because everyone has their own opinion of it. Some people see demonstration as testing. You test the final product. You test it uh, as it stands with no pr previous information, no assumptions, nothing, which is the classical, core classical school of statistics. We don't want that. That is uh, if we're using Bayesian analysis, that is. So if you're talking about demonstration, nine times out of 10, people think about actually testing the final version of the product and nothing else, which is inherently classical. So if you're going to use Bayesian analysis for reliability demonstration testing, one thing you'll have to do is come up with your concept of a prior distribution. What is the understanding of reliability you, you have before you commence that test? And that's where we get ourselves into trouble because when we're coming, when it's time to pass a test, there's all sorts of um, conflicts of interest at play here. You'll have someone who really wants to pass the test. You have a contractor who wants to pass the test, for example. And so when you ask them what their opinion about the reliability is, they'll say, well, it's through the roof, which is going to help Bayesian analysis from their perspective. So there's an inherent conflict of interest. When you're talking about it from the customer perspective, sometimes there's, a, you, you, there, there's some people who haven't had good experiences with this contractor, so on and so forth, and they let their personal personal feelings come through as well. So perhaps the fourth, um, the, the fourth part of eliciting expert opinion 
which hopefully answers Nelson's uh, question as well, is to make sure that they are, there's no conflict of interest involved um, from those experts you asked. But Bayesian analysis can be used uh, for reliability demonstration testing depending on what you view demonstration testing to be. Does that help? Both you, Rajiv, and you, Nelson? Just waiting for the responses to come through. No worries, two big yeses. Well, that's 12 o'clock my time or 60 minutes, depending on uh, where, what time zone you're in. So, hey, team, thank you very much for turning up. Um, again, if you, have any, uh, if you have any feedback for the webinars, any ideas about what we can do in the future, please let us know. These webinars are something we create for you guys. And if there's any topic that we could really, uh, really help you out on, let us know. And there's a good chance that we'll do a webinar about it sooner rather than later because it's based on what you guys want and, uh, and uh, not only what you guys want, but what we see as a, a useful topic to talk about. And Bayesian analysis and every other webinar is involves things that we see as useful. So thank you for your time. And uh, feel free to reach out after this. Send me an email if you have any further questions. If you want to do some DIY Bayesian analyses yourselves, please reach out. Um, beyond that, have, a, have an enjoyable day and the rest of the week. Thank you very much. Okay.